So we're in Esther chapter 5 today. If you do want to turn, it's on page uh, 504 in the church Bible. If you're near one or if you've got it on your phone or whatever, please turn with me to Esther chapter 5. She said three days. Three days. That was all. And on the third day, true to her word, Esther leaves the royal apartment, walks towards the inner court in the palace, going against all the Persian protocol, breaking the law of the Medes and the Persians, and entering into the presence of the king without an invitation. She walks along the marble floor, past the 36 columns, each standing 65 foot tall, and behind each one is an axe man, a bodyguard ready for action. She stands fully aware that she might perish in the process. And then we read verse 2. We read there, when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. It feels like the space between the end of chapter 4 and the start of chapter 5 is huge. The watching, the waiting, the wailing, the worry. These three days were the longest three days in Esther's life. And yet we can see so clearly that these days were far from wasted. Let's notice first of all today, Esther's approach. Esther's approach. You know, we know why Esther had to approach the king. The whole of her people and all of what they stood for was about to be wiped out, exterminated by Haman. We know why she had to intervene. But I think we have much to learn from the how she had to intervene. She intervened in approaching this unpredictable and volatile king. Her approach was dependent on God as it was, first of all, rooted in prayer. It was rooted in prayer. That's what the end of chapter 4 was all about, where we left it last week. Esther instructed her people to fast and pray for three days before she entered into the king's presence. Esther knew that her God was the Lord of Israel, the saving God who had proved himself many times in the past. And despite living as strangers in a strange land, God was no stranger to his people. Borders and empires, kings and rulers did not affect his effectiveness. Times of personal concern or national crises did not reduce his capacity to turn things around or shake the system. Esther was growing in confidence, developing in boldness, filled with assurance over these days that she had thrown herself upon her God. Do you see what prayer does? Prayer might start with us pleading with God about some great cause that concerns us. Prayer might be triggered by a tragedy that comes crashing in upon us. But whatever it is that sparks us to pray, when we pray and pray again, giving ourselves to God, saying, Lord, in my weakness I am lacking, in myself I am nothing, in my own strength I cannot do this, suddenly we come to realize that prayer doesn't always change the challenge we face. But prayer changes us. Prayer changes us. Prayer brings us to that point where we realize what we really are, human. And God is who God really is, divine. 
we feel a growing sense of our own unworthiness, whilst also experience his amazing sense of holiness. We see more of our sin and at the same time experience more of his grace. Prayer, the very thought behind it, the image that it leaves us with, is of someone here on earth, helpless, crying out to the only one who can help us in heaven. Prayer changes us. It reminds us who is who in the relationship. It enables us to set aside any pretense in our lives, any falseness in our hearts. This most precious gift of God that calls us to come to him changes us. It might change the circumstance, but it changes us. For it's here we see how undeserving of anything from God, but how utterly wonderful he is. It is there we're reminded that we are not simply calling God as if he's the fourth emergency service. And sadly, that's what so many Christians have turned prayer into. It's like, oh, we've tried the doctor and he can't help. We've tried this person, they cannot. Tell you what, let's pray about it. But it reminds us we're in the presence of the creator. The God who brings life from nothing. The God whose word when spoken brings life. The God who holds the fire and the wind, the storms and the seas, eternity and history, the keys of heaven and hell. The God who lives in unapproachable light. When we spend time in his presence, we are changed. We are changed. And in these three days, Esther has been practicing the presence of God. And because she's been talking to the God who made her and created this very king that she's going to go before and the very kingdom of Persia in which she lives, is it any wonder that she gets up on day three and walks with such dignity and boldness and confidence past those axe-wielding guards because she knows she lives in the presence of the king of kings. Esther dares to stand uninvited before the emperor of Persia because she sees the higher throne. Esther's approach is rooted in prayer, and it changes her from being so timid to being so bold, because she goes in the power of her God. Esther's approach also involved preparation. That's the second thing we notice here. During these days of prayer and fasting, you know, Esther wasn't idle. She wasn't sitting in a dark corner singing and whistling sweet hour of prayer and just hoping for the best. True prayer always prompts us to action. And over these verses, we see how Esther's growing confidence in God is reflected in her preparations. For a start, look at verse 1, something so simple. Be easy to miss. Look at verse 1. She puts on her royal robes. She is reminded of the helpful advice of her servant Haggai in Esther 2, verse 15 already, over what King Xerxes likes his women to wear. And so she puts on those clothes. I'm sure she was meticulous over what makeup she wore and what perfume she sprayed and the shoes that she slipped on and that her outfit was just right. And then she prepares a feast. Now think about this for a moment. What was Esther doing at this time while she was praying? What's she doing? Fasting. And... While she's preparing, she's preparing a feast. While she's fasting. Now, I don't know about you, but even whenever I'm in a full stomach, I find it hard to walk past even a rich tea biscuit. But here was someone, while she was fasting, was preparing a feast. 
But she knew. She knew her king. Esther chapter 1. Have a quick look at your Bible. Esther chapter 1. What are they all doing in Esther chapter 1? They're all having a jolly good feast. Esther chapter 2. Esther becomes queen. What does the king throw? Good, some of you are waking up. Esther chapter 3. Haman is appointed and they have a... This king likes his feasts. But no one seems to be throwing a feast for him. So when the king says to Esther, what can I do for you? Esther thinks through her time of prayer and preparation, she's so smart. Look at verse 4. Let me prepare a feast for you. For we all know that the way to a man's heart Oh, you're all there already. It's through his stomach. And not just one feast, but look at verses 6 and 7. She says, come back tomorrow for another feast. You know, Esther didn't just come up with this idea in the spur of the moment. She wasn't sitting there suddenly thinking, whenever the king asked that question, what am I going to say, what am I going to say, what am I going to say? For three days she'd been preparing for that moment. Three whole days preparing for that moment and working towards that moment. She was working, she was praying, and she was planning. In her crying out to God over these three days about what she should do and how she should approach the king and what she should say, the Lord directs her to use what she already knows about the king to serve the king, to draw out his love, to bring him to that place where his heart is soft and his attitude kind. She plays smart. You see, this time of unhurried prayer helped her to formulate the big plan. It gave her a way ahead. And maybe that's what some of us need right now. I said it even in the context of church life, when we pray about the way ahead. But as we pray, we are to be planning. Or in home life, as we pray about a situation, but what are we doing about the situation? In work life, the thing that troubles us, we might be praying, but what are we planning? In our relationships and those that we struggle with, we might be praying, but what are we doing. In our outreach to the people we know who need the Savior, we might be praying, but what are we planning? And maybe we all just need to stop and pray and plan and prepare and see what is it that person is really into? What is it that person really likes? Or what might be a way to their heart so then I get the opportunity? Playing, praying, and planning always go together. Alongside praying, let me ask all of us what planning and practical preparation is required for those things that we have been praying much for. And God, you see, uses our minds, our skills, our plans, our homes, our hospitality, our leading, our guiding. Third thing we notice, Esther's approach also showed great patience. Esther's approach also showed great patience. It certainly wasn't hurried. She doesn't seem hassled. She has the great king of Persia and his powerful prime minister, Haman, hanging on her every word by the time they get to that second feast. When she sits down with King Xerxes and her arch enemy, Haman, she isn't sitting there vengeful. She could have easily gone in and just shot from the hip and say, heed the problem, sort him out. But no, she doesn't. She's patient. She had wrestled with these feelings for three days, and now she was resting in God's timings. We might feel frustrated at the slow 
It's pace with which she moves, but she is not stalling. We want to know what happens next. You know, there's so many Christians, I think, would love that actually chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Esther just disappeared. Because all, you're almost hanging on between the end of chapter 3 and the start of chapter 7. They're going, come on, Esther. Just, 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 get to, get, just get to it. For we live in an age of binge-watching TV. We like to get a resolution to our problems right away. And if we don't know, well, Mr. Google or Auntie Alexa will tell us pretty quick. We do so little of the legwork these days. We all have a hand on our phones and the artificial friends do it all for us. We're a generation that is simply not used to waiting. We're not. But the Bible and its call in the lives of Christians is so different. Waiting on God. It reminds me of that incredible verse in Isaiah 40, verse 31, that many of you will know off by heart. But those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And from that verse, we learn four things about waiting. Let me rattle through them really quickly. Number one, first of all, when we wait on the Lord, we gain new strength. It's there in the verse. We may feel weak, even intimidated when we turn to our Lord. But while waiting, amazingly, we exchange our weakness. And when we're in his presence, we gain his strength. The second thing is we get a better perspective. Ever heard of a bird's eye view? That's what this verse is all about. That's what the eagle in this verse is all about. It's not some mystical thing that you're on these wings. No. You get a bird's eye view. Eagles can spot a fish in a lake miles away on a clear day. But soaring like eagles whilst waiting, we get a perspective on all that we're dealing with. We get to see everything, not from our eyes, but from the eyes of God, the one who rules over all. Because we get time in his presence, we get time in his word, we get time in prayer, and suddenly we see things as they really are. Thirdly, we store up extra energy. We will run and not get tired. You notice it's future tense? We will run. It's going to be in the future. So in order to be able to run in the future, you've got to wait now and be in his presence. When we encounter the thing that we've been dreading, we will encounter it with a new strength, a new vitality, with extra energy, all because we've waited and prepared, prayed and planned. Fourth thing on that screen, we will develop our determination to persevere. We will walk and not grow weary. The Lord puts steel in our bones and increasingly we feel more invincible. For we have let God's word rule our hearts. We have let God's spirit fill our lives. We have let God's truth be our guide. For when we have waited in God's presence, unhurried, we see what kind of incredibly powerful and personal God we actually have. But we're always in And for those of us who sit on this side of the cross, trusting in Christ, we see that even more clearly than Esther. For the God that we have, the sheer majesty and splendor of our Savior, with nail-scarred hands, thorn-marked brow, and previously worn grave clothes, neatly now folded, gives us a true perspective on life and death. How do I know? Because Romans chapter 8, verse 37 tells me that. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Or the Greek says we are hyper-conquerors through him who loved us.
Ray Orton says of that verse. Paul wants us to see our enemies swirling around us. He wants us to imagine the worst case scenario. He wants us to ask the tough questions. And he admits, yes, life beats us up, but in it all, there is a love that will not let us go. God's love will not allow our faith to die because God's love undergirds our faith. Certainty in the life of God is how the gospel makes heroes out of ordinary sinners. I love that line. How the gospel makes heroes out of ordinary sinners. Because you know, folks, life is mean. And life is hard to bear. But real life does not mean that God no longer cares. In it all, we move forward, not as victims, but as victors, because Christ has already conquered. Our sufferings do not define us. The love of God now defines us. And when we stop, and when we wait, and when we remember, we will gain new strength. We will get a better perspective. We will store up energy. We will deepen our determination to persevere because we have waited upon the Lord. Even when nothing appears to be happening, this might be one of those waiting times for you. Here is a word for you today. Maybe it's time for you to pray and even call a few close friends around you and say, I'm not going to rush this. I don't know my way through this. I can't find the path to walk. But in the meantime, I'm going to give it to you, God. I'm going to listen to what you say to me. Won't you pray with me? And won't you pray for me? I believe the Spirit is saying to us today, if you're on the verge of a decision, a reaction, a response, wait on God. That's a word for someone here today. Wait on God. Don't be in a hurry. Restrain your human tendency to move things on like we all like to. Get things moving ourselves. Take time to see things as they really are. Just as Esther prepared for her finest hour. Pray, wait, think, stay fast. Listen. Secondly, and much more briefly, Esther's approach to that of Haman, they're very different. We see Haman's anger. Haman's anger... First of all, despite having everything. Look at verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. He's so happy and then he sees Mordecai. He was filled with rage and then he travels home. And look at verse 11. When he gets home, he throws a pity party. He gathers all his friends round and tells them how wonderful he is, and then he tells them of the challenges he faces. Verses 11 and 12. I'm not sure this is the kind of party I'd have liked to have gone to. Look at verses 11 and 12. He gathers all his friends and proceeds to tell them how wonderful he is. Look at what he says. He boasts about his wealth. He tells them about his many sons, the king's honors that he's received, his elevation as prime minister. Verse 12, that he was the only dinner guest with the royal couple with another meal promised in the morning. My riches, my sons, my honor, my meals, me, myself, I. You know somebody just talks constantly about themselves. I, I think it's very interesting. He invites his wife, Zeres. Very kind of him to invite Zeres, his own wife, to his own party, isn't it? And that even in the discussion, he takes the credit for the ten sons that were born to him. 
It's as if he's telling her how many sons he has. You can see her rolling her eyes. As if she had nothing to do with the ten sons that were delivered. She's heard it all before. She knows his stories. He's famous because he's always photographed next to the king. He'll be in the next edition of Hello reclining at Esther's dinner party. And one of his sons is rumored to be in the next series of I'm a Celebrity. He's really made it that big. He's front page news. But in spite of it all and all the celebrity, he is satisfied by nothing. He's satisfied by nothing. After listing the string of successes, one of the saddest verses in all of Esther is verse 13. Look at verse 13. How sad is it? And that's not all he had. I'm the only person Queen Esther's invited to come to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. Verse 13, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king gate. Why is he hanging around? What's he doing back there without his sackcloth and ashes on this time? Oh, there's always a niggle. Ten sons. Prime minister. More riches than he could count. Someone or something will always come along to rob us of our joy. Reminds me of a couple of quotes I've heard quite recently. The first was from American singer Beyonce, as she spoke about her climb to stardom a few years ago. Look what she said. It was beginning to get fuzzy. I couldn't even tell which day or which city I was at. I would sit there at ceremonies and they would be giving me an award and I was just thinking about the next performance. No joy. No happiness in that. Or Kendall Jenner of the Kardashian dynasty said, where'd I even start? Everything is so horrible. It's hard to name one thing. I just think that the world needs so much love. I wish you had the power to send Cupid around the planet, as cheesy as that sounds. And yes, it does sound cheesy, Kendall. But all the looks and the awards and the fame and the titles, they didn't even know what city they were in or what awards they'd won or how much money they had. It reminds me of the words of Jesus. You can gain the whole world, but you can lose your soul. Haman has the simmering hatred of Mordecai to get him shut up before he blows up. Zeres, his wife, and his friends say towards the end, listen, you have the power, build a gallows, set up a pole, and hang Mordecai there in the morning. And off they go, and up goes the 75-foot pole from which Mordecai will hang. Haman's friends offer him a quick-fire solution that will ultimately fail. Do you see the difference? Esther waited for three days upon the Lord. Haman went to these friends. He shot from heaven and said, you've got the power. You're the boss. You sort him out. Why do we have that sense that things aren't right? Why do little things niggle us and annoy us so much? Why do we become so grumpy so easily? Well, it's because there's a little bit of human in all of us. There are people or things that are annoy us that we would love to remove from our lives. And you know why? Because we become so focused on all that's around us and we've forgotten the God who's above us. But as we finish, let me take you to another pole that was hoisted high in the sky where another devout Jew who refused to bow the knee to his enemy was raised up, dying as a representative of his people far from home and executed in all his innocence. And that man was Jesus. Do you know why he died? 
for your human type sins and my human type sins of our pride and rebellion and hatred. That required the death of the righteous Son of God. In a world that is constantly seeking satisfaction, we find it not in the humans of this world, but in the Savior who by humbling himself gave himself over to death, even death on a cross. And here's the rub this morning. For three days, Esther waited on the Lord and that renewed her confidence. Three days after his death, Jesus exposes us to a whole new way of life. We call it eternal life. Giving us a new confidence in our crises. Because as he rises from that grave, blowing the lid off all those things that would frighten us and condemn us or bring about the hellish holocaust that we deserve as sinners. So what are we displaying in our lives? What's on the mantelpiece at the forefront of who we think we are? What are we making space for that we believe will satisfy and complete our lives? Some of us are miserable deep within, as grumpy as get out, because we have never fully understood what Christ has done for us. Let it go. Let it go. And look at this Jesus. And keep looking at this Jesus, because that three-day wait has changed our futures eternally and forever. And in him, and in him alone, will you and I renew our strength. Because you won't get it anywhere else. Wait upon the Lord. And he will renew your strength. Lord our God, today we pray for all those who are waiting. Those who are waiting news from a hospital. Those who are waiting for a call from a family member. Those waiting for results that might define their future. Those waiting to hear back about a matter that concerns them. Those desperately waiting for a solution to a problem. Father, we pray for your people here in Union Road today who are waiting. May they take the Esther rather than the Haman family approach. May they not push through just for a decision to sort out a niggle or an annoyance, but may they wait upon you and in prayer and in planning and waiting and in watching, do so in you. Give them that eagle-eyed view of the whole situation. Enable them to see things as you see them rather than running. May they be watching. Lord, today we would especially pray for Ashley Collins in ICU in Craig Alvin. This young man taken ill so unexpectedly. Our hearts are heavy for them today. And we lift up lovingly to you, Laura, and Brian and Diane and Louise, as they sit with him and await further news today. 
be Ashley's strength and be their strength, we pray. And for all who need renewed strength, may they find it in the Savior, the one who went to that pole, the one that was raised high between heaven and earth and took all our human-like sin and shame. Thank you for the difference that those three days have made, not just for Esther, but in the story of our lives as our Savior rises victorious. And Lord, that makes an eternal difference so that even if the worst should come, we will receive the very best, a new life, a new home, in safety of the Father's arms. Lord, for a world that is confused and seemingly facing a whole new set of crises, we pray for those who've caught and are quarantined by the coronavirus. We pray for loved ones who've lost family members to it. We pray that this virus will be contained, isolated, and eradicated. And we also think of those hurting families in Thailand today whose loved ones were gunned down in cold blood on a regular Saturday by this lone gunman. And Lord, we also continue to remember the people of Yemen in hunger and in desperation and the Akdam people in their segregation cut off from God's word and gospel hope. Lord, hear us, we pray. And for those whom we will approach this week with a certain fear and trepidation, may we pray and prepare. May we find a boldness and a calmness as we know we are in the presence of a great God who holds the hearts of kings in every person like water in a bottle. May we know that you will hold us fast.